Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 17, Genesis chapters 17 and 18. Uh, today, we're going to begin Genesis chapter 17. And it's a pretty long chapter. So we're going to break it up a little bit. And we're going to start by reading the first 14 verses. So open your Bibles to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, and we're going to read verses 1 through 14. When Abraham was 99 years old, Adonai appeared to Avram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk in my presence and be pure-hearted. I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will increase your numbers greatly. Avram fell on his face, and God continued speaking with him. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Avram, but your name will be Avraham, because I have made you the father of many nations. I will cause you to be very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will descend from you. I am establishing my covenant between me and you, along with your descendants after you. Generation after generation is an everlasting covenant to be God for you and for your descendants after you. I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are now foreigners. All the land of Canaan as a permanent possession. And I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you are to keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, generation after generation. Here is my covenant, which you are to keep between me and you, along with your descendants after you. Every male among you is to be circumcised. You are to be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. This will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Generation after generation, every male among you who is eight days old is to be circumcised, including slaves born within your household and those bought from a foreigner not descended from you. The slave born in your house and the person bought with your money must be circumcised. Thus, my covenant will be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who will not let himself be circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person will be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. Okay, in the first part of chapter 17... We're given a benchmark. Abraham is 99 years old. And when when this appearance of, of God occurs. Now, 13 years, therefore, have passed between the final words of chapter 16 and these first beginning words of chapter 17. Anything that went on in that 13-year period, we're more or less kept apart from. But there are a few things that we can know. First, Hagar had her son Ishmael, and he is now about 13 years old. Second, Sarai is still without a child. Matter of fact, she's not just barren of a male child, that is of an heir, but of any children whatsoever. Third, the clan is still living in Canaan. Fourth, very likely there's been no contact 
between God and Abraham during that 13-year period, we would have heard about it. And fifth, the first covenant that Yahweh made with Abraham remains intact. Now, in this new appearance, God adds a new covenant to the earlier one he's already made with him by declaring that Abraham is now going to be the father of many nations. And by the way, this does not necessarily mean only Hebrew nations, nor even more importantly will every one of these nations that he produces be of the line of the covenant promise. Now the Hebrew word used here for nations is goyim. And the usage of the word goyim has changed over time. But is it has held basically the same meaning. Okay. Goyim means nations or people. Now it means not of Hebrew descent. Okay. It can also have the plain meaning of any nation, generic, Hebrew or not. But the context that we're reading makes it the key. Okay. Today, the most common usage of goyim when it applies to a person is Gentile, a non-Hebrew, a non-Jew. Now, did Abraham take the word goyim, nation, to mean non-Hebrew people? Okay. No. Abraham was just himself becoming the very first Hebrew. To Abraham, goyim, that, that word simply meant that not only was his offspring going to be many, but they, they would separate into several people groups, become several distinct and separate nations of peoples. All right? Yet, as we have seen, as, as we've seen the benefit of looking back now for 4,000 years, what we will see is indeed Abraham fathered both Hebrews and non-Hebrews. Abraham fathered the Jewish people as well as a number of Gentile people groups. And we're going to see that shortly. Now, in verse 5, we see that God changed Abraham's name. Now, this won't be the last time we see a person's name get changed. He goes from being called Avram, A-V-R-A-M, to, be calling, to being called Avraham, A-V-R-A-H-A-M. That is, from being called exalted father to the father of many. Right? Or in a better translation, probably father of multitudes. Now, this is also at the point at which one could reasonably say Abraham became a Hebrew. Now, at exactly what point in time Abraham started referring to himself and certain offspring as Hebrew, we don't know. In fact, there is even disagreement over what Hebrew means, what that word means. It's generally accepted in the Bible scholar community that it means one who crossed over, but there's other explanations as well. Bible anthropologists and archaeologists, however, will tell you that it is probable that the word Hebrew was a word that did not come until much later in time, and it would have come from an oriental word, Ipiru, I-P-U-R-U. Ipiru was used in Canaan. 
right, and in other nearby areas as a term that simply meant wanderers or foreigners, and that it had any specific nation that that person, that that Iperu could be attached to. Now, certainly at some at the point in history we're talking about, Abraham and his clan were betwixt and between. Although they had come from Ur, they no longer considered themselves to, to be Ur Kasdim. That is, home was no longer Ur of Chaldea back up in Mesopotamia. Okay. Yet, Abraham's clan certainly had not established a separate identity yet. All right. Nor could they point to a place in Canaan that they could say they've now belonged to. Okay. For although God promised them the land of Canaan as their inheritance, they had yet really to claim that inheritance as of, as of this time. Now, this covenant in verse 6 about fathering many nations is another of those permanent, unconditional covenants. All Abraham could do is be blessed by it because he had no real obligations to the covenant. But God was about to make yet another covenant with Abraham. And while this next covenant would be permanent, it would be perpetual, it was most definitely conditional. Okay, This next covenant was bilateral as opposed to unilateral. That is, Abraham and his descendants now had obligations to perform to keep this covenant intact. However, this covenant was also individual in nature. Each person, each male actually, of Abraham's line had the responsibility to accept this covenant for himself or not. In other words, the person who broke the covenant would be the, the one affected they would lose the provisions of the covenant as it pertained to himself. But the covenant would remain in effect for all the other individuals who accepted it and did what they were supposed to do. Okay, This covenant the Jews call the Barit Milah, we call it circumcision. Okay, Now, before we discuss circumcision, let's take a look at verse 8. It says that God is giving the land to Abraham and his to his descendants forever. Now, I know we've talked about this quite a bit, and I don't want to repeat myself. Yet, I need to make something clear that is so often missed. And I hope you give me all your attention on this. There is a difference between Israel having been giving the, given the land and Israel living in the land. The Bible term we usually find when it's referring to Israel living in the land is that they possess it. Possess doesn't quite mean the same thing we usually think of. In the Bible, possess usually means to occupy. It doesn't really refer to ownership. Let me give you an analogy. Okay. You buy a car. The local bank finances it. Until you fully pay for it, who owns the car? The bank. They own the car. But do they possess it? No. You possess it. All right. 
it's not even really, I mean, it's not legally your car, but you have it right now. They own it, but they're not possessing it at this moment. Somebody else is possessing it. Right? If you fail to pay, then the bank does what? They repossess it. All right. Do they re-own it? No, they've never stopped owning it. They just stopped possessing it for a while. Now they're going to possess it again. All right. From the moment God made the covenant with Abraham, the land belonged to the Hebrews. They owned it at that moment. But the time hadn't yet come for them to possess it, to occupy it. Okay. Even for the 400 years Israel spent in Egypt, Egypt already owned the land of Canaan because God had already given it to them. They just didn't possess it yet. They didn't occupy it yet. Now, people tend to confuse things and say that Israel lost ownership of the land when God removed them, say, to Babylon for their sins. And yet again, when the Romans gained control and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Not so. The ownership remained with Israel. God simply refused to allow Israel to occupy the land, to possess it for an extended period of time. Now, this is hardly splitting hairs. Right? It is just understanding the difference between possessing and owning. Right? And it is rather pertinent to those that say, well, Israel lost possession of the land for 1900 years, so they don't have a right to it anymore. They also lost ownership. Wrong. Nope. They're the only ones that have a right to it because despite not possessing it at times, they've never stopped owning it. And I hope you see this crucial difference. Now, further, the phrase, phrasing of the promise in verse 7, whereby the covenant will continue between God and Abraham, and then it says, and your offspring to come as an everlasting covenant. Now that part about the offspring is not a throw-in statement. Okay. This statement, and your offspring to come as an everlasting covenant, was legal terminology from that era. Okay. Law codes have been found from that era of time, and it was understood that there were limitations as to how property could be handed down before it reverted to some king or prince who'd laid claim to that area. By the inclusion of the words, and your offspring to come as an everlasting covenant, it legally, for that day, meant that Abraham's descendants kept that property and could continue to, to hand it down without restriction that no other king, no prince could ever have a right to it. So understand, this was legal terminology, not hyperbole. Okay. Now also understand what this new covenant of circumcision means. In the first covenant with Abraham, which God just said remains fully intact, Abraham was just a passive participant. He didn't have to do much of anything. Okay. But in the New Covenant, 
meant for Abraham's offspring, there was an obligation. Circumcision as a sign that they chose to participate in the Abrahamic covenant. Which meant they gave their loyalty to the God of Abraham. Okay, now, as we will see as time goes on, this covenant of circumcision follows only a certain line of Abraham's descendants. It doesn't mean that all of his children will be eligible. Just those who are part of what will be called the line of promise. Hebrews, which will eventually lead to Israelites, are that line of promise. Now basically, each male following Abraham who expects to be able to partake in the blessings of the covenants that God gave to Abraham must, as an obligation, be circumcised. That is, active participation is required. Now, I don't need to get overly graphic about circumcision because this procedure of removing the male's genital foreskin is a common practice today in most societies and it's common knowledge. And usually it is done by non-Jewish families simply for medical reasons, but even the need for that is disputed. Now Jews to this day have a bris, a circumcision ceremony for each male child on the eighth day after his birth. And the practice of male circumcision existed long before this instruction from God to Abraham. This was not a new thing. Okay. It wasn't a new invention any more than the covenant ceremony we saw God participate in with Abraham where they walked between the pieces of that cut-up animal was a new invention. Okay. Rather, these things had been employed in many cultures of that day as and circumcision, interestingly, was in some cultures part of the marriage ceremony. All right. Or more typically, as a sign of entrance into puberty. Now, one thing God did was to take the trauma out of it by having it performed not on a young teenage boy or a man on his wedding day, all right, but on an eight-day-old baby. Plus, God employed this existing rite as a sort of loyalty oath. And he added great meaning to it. You know, just as with the stars and the planets, God used things from nature when he chose to create a sign for his own good purposes. He said he put these things in nature to be used as signs. I mean, after all, every one of these natural things owed its very existence to God. The sad fact that so many of these things then as now um, have had different meanings attached, you know, like astrology, to the things that God made as signs is simply a, a perversion. Okay, but here's the thing. Remember that the standard covenant protocol that we witnessed last week and the week before required the shedding of blood, typical and typically animal blood, right? And then the cutting of flesh, typically animal flesh, and the separating of that cut up flesh into two groups. Here with circumcision, the cutting procedure occurred using the male body as the sacrificial flesh. The flesh was cut, blood shed, the cut up flesh separated. 
Okay, one part buried in the ground, the other remaining on the body. Quite literally, and we're told so here, Abraham and his male descendants wore the covenant. And they were the covenant. Okay. The penalty for refusing the circumcision covenant was pretty stern. You're to be cut off, correct, all right, from your people. Now, this was both spiritual and literal. When a male descendant of Abraham refused the circumcision, or when a parent refused to have their boy child have a circumcision, they were physically separated from the clan, and they were spiritually separated from God. They were no longer Hebrews, and they could claim no right to any of God's covenant promises. That is why God, through Paul, explained that what God really wanted was circumcised hearts, not circumcised flesh. We're to wear the sign of our covenant with God in our hearts. God wanted our hearts to accept and wear that covenant that came to us by so great a price. Okay. Paul says we have our hearts circumcised. We are very literally accepting God's covenant protocol upon ourselves. And since the advent of Yeshua and the new covenant he established, we find ourselves in the same position as Abraham. Either we are circumcised by accepting the new covenant, which is the blood of Christ, or we refuse it. If we accept it, we're perpetually a part of the chosen of God. If we refuse it, we're cut off. Now, that way, while that may startle some of you, Paul's world, words probably knocked some of those Jewish people he was talking to on their knees because they well understood all the ins and outs of covenant ceremony and symbolism, and particularly of circumcision. But because the church has for so long turned our backs on the Jewish nature of the Bible, the impact of things like the act of covenant making hasn't been well understood or made the impact upon us that it should. Now, there is a principle and pattern contained in verse 12 where it says generation after generation every male among you who is eight day old is to be circumcised including slaves born within your household and those bought from a foreigner not descended from you okay. so what it's saying is it was not just those from Abraham's gene pool that could become part of this covenant. Here it states that the home-born slave or a purchased slave of a Hebrew, that is a foreigner, could be included in the covenant by being circumcised. Understand, by law, a purchased slave became a family member. Hmm? Want a new brother? Go buy one. They had almost all the rights of a family member. Almost, but not quite. Okay. Therefore, a baby that was born to a purchased slave also became a family member. That's what it's talking about here. Now, 
This is so foreign to the usual picture we have of what slavery amounted to in Bible times among, among the Hebrews. We get this idea that the foreign slaves of Hebrews were mistreated or something. In fact, they weren't. They were even part of the family. The concept of slave ownership among Hebrews is very close to the modern day concept of adoption. Okay, so let's not confuse also slave ownership and indentured servitude because those are two different things. Being a bond servant, someone who is your servant for a period of time, all right, because they have to repay a debt to you. That person did not qualify to be a member of that family. Only a purchased slave could be a family member. I mean, in some ways that kind of seems reversed to us. All right, But in fact, that's the way it operated. So very early on now, the idea that genetics, bloodlines, was not going to be the sole determining factor for membership in the holy community was established. Okay. Here, beginning with Abraham, a foreigner who was willing to follow the Hebrew ways and the Hebrew God could be given full citizenship as a Hebrew with all the covenant rights that any natural born Hebrew would have had. This is the same principle that we as Gentiles rely on by being grafted into the covenants of Israel. Those covenants given to Abraham and Moses and Yeshua, covenants given to Israel. That's how we become a part. Let's move on now to uh, Genesis 15. Uh, rather, verse 15. Uh, Genesis 17, I'm going to read 15 through 27. Move on a little farther. God said to Avraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are not to call her Sarai. Her name is to be Sarah. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. Truly, I will bless her. She will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. At this, Avraham fell on his face and laughed. He thought to himself, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah give birth at ninety? Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael could live in your presence. God answered, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you're to call him Yitzhak. Okay, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. But as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and give him many descendants. He will father 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Yitzhak, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. With that, God finished with Abraham and went up from him. Abraham took Ishmael his son, all the slaves born in his house, and all who had been bought with his money, every male from among the people in Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, just as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old 
when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Abraham and Ishmael, his son, were circumcised on the same day. And all the men in his household, both slaves born in his house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Well, in these few words I've just read, we have the basis for hostility that is sooner or later going to lead the world into global conflict. Okay. The first few verses are basically God conveying to Abraham that Sarah, his wife, is miraculously going to give birth to a child. Why miraculous? She had a dead womb. Okay. She was incapable of producing children, which is why she gave her handmaiden Hagar to Abraham to have a child in her stead around 14 years ago. Okay. And even if her body had been functioning properly, she was well beyond childbearing years. All right, as Abraham himself attests, for at this time Sarah was 90 years old. Well, when God tells Abraham that Sarah is going to give him a son, Abraham responds with these infamous words of verse 18. If only Ishmael could live in your presence. Absorb that for a minute. I mean, I hope you hear the pain and the shock and the desperation with which Abraham uttered this plea to God. Abraham was perfectly happy with Ishmael. He loved Ishmael. Abraham considered Ishmael his firstborn son. This was his heir as far as he was concerned. He never even remotely thought of Ishmael as anything other than his legitimate, much-loved heir. And even before God issued his answer, Abraham knew what was coming. In verse 19, God says no to Abraham's plea. That the child Sarah was about to produce would be Abraham's heir, and further, that this boy child would be the one whom God would establish and continue his covenant with. And that that child's name would be Yitzhak, Isaac, meaning laughter, for good reason. Because both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the astounding notion that they, at their advanced age, would have a child. Now let's be very clear here. God emphatically rejected Ishmael as the one who would carry on the line of covenant promise that God had made with Abraham. This is not conjecture. Rather, this would be Isaac, Yitzhak, who would be the one. Today, Muslims claim that the scriptures have been modified to reflect Isaac is the favored son when it should have been Ishmael. Which is interesting since um, Islam didn't even begin until 600 years after the birth of Christ. All right, the Bible had been closed as a canon for hundreds of years before this time. Now here is another division and separation and election by God. 
You see, Isaac would be the grandfather of the Israelites who would eventually bring the Savior, the Messiah, into the world. While Ishmael would be grandfather to the Arab peoples. Understand, Islam, Muslims, are not a race of people. Okay? It is but the religion that Arabs adopted some six centuries after Christ's death and resurrection. But the Muslims see no difference for they call Ishmael and Abraham the fathers of Islam. Yet how quickly we tend to overlook what God says to Abraham in verse 20. Okay. Referring to Ishmael, God says, I have blessed him. Or in a better translation, I am blessing him. Okay. Isaac is the line of promise, but Ishmael's also blessed. Just not as being of the line of promise. In fact, it's noteworthy that just as Israel would consist of 12 princes, that is 12 tribal chieftains, so would the descendants of Ishmael consist of 12 tribal princes. And it's important to remember that not only is Abraham the true father of the Arabs, just as he is the true father of Israel, but that Shem, the blessed line of good, is the forefather of both Arabs and Jews. Both of these people groups are Semites. Has Ishmael been blessed? Well, not only have the Arabs grown into an enormous population, far outstripping the number of Israelites, but look in our time how they've been blessed. A century ago, the Middle East was looked upon as perhaps the most worthless expanse of land on the entire planet. Yet there, under that dry desert sand, they've also discovered about half of all the Earth's oil reserves, which have made the Arabs among the wealthiest people in the world. Now, unfortunately, the Arab culture has remained tribal, right? And so only a few of the most powerful benefit from this vast wealth. In any case, Ishmael, 13 years old at the time of this blessing, is circumcised along with Abraham and every male, free and slave, in Abraham's household. Let's move on into chapter 18. Chapter 18 of Genesis. We'll go just a few verses. <clears throat> Adonai appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance to the tent during the heat of the day. He raised his eyes and looked, and there in front of him stood three men. On seeing them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, prostrated himself on the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please don't leave your servant. Please let me send for some water so that you can wash your feet then rest under the tree and I'll bring a piece of bread. Now that you have come to your servant, refresh yourselves before going on. Very well, they replied, do what you have said. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, three measures of the best flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, took a good tender calf and gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it all before the men. 
and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, Over there in the tent. He said, I will certainly return to you around this time next year, and Sarah your wife will have a son. Sarah heard him from the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in their years. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, I am old, so is my Lord. Am I going to have pleasure again? Adonai said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and ask, Am I really going to bear a child when I'm so old? Is anything too hard for Adonai? At the time set for it, at this season next year, I will return to you, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't either laugh, because she was afraid, and he said, not so, you did laugh. We'll stop it there for the moment. This chapter is a good reminder of the character and essence of the entire book of Genesis. Okay. It is the book of beginnings, or in a similar light, it is the book of foundations. Foundations of principles and types and laws of God. Now, we could speed through this chapter, but boy, we'd miss the beginnings of several God principles set down for us here. And these principles will form the basis for how the whole Bible will play out. Now, the scene that we witness in this chapter takes place in the hills of Hebron from where one can get a beautiful view of practically the whole Dead Sea and we start out right away with a mystery that we likely are not going to answer okay in verse 1 it says the Lord appeared to Abraham and perhaps in your Bible as in mine it says Adonai appeared to Abraham. And it's important to get this as straight as we can because it impacts the entire rest of the chapter. The word Adonai is a Hebrew word and it translates to Lord or Master. Okay. So that much is certainly fine. There's just one problem. That's not the word used in the original Hebrew Old Testament manuscripts. The word is Yud Hey Vav Hey Yahweh. Okay. Two things. First, the reason we see it that way. Why why don't why didn't they put Yahweh in there? Why didn't they put Jehovah? Why didn't they do that? Okay. It's done that way due to a tradition among the Jews. And the tradition is that it is forbidden to say the name of God. It has evolved to the point that among most observant Jews, you also can't say the word God, nor even spell it. So quite often, if you read something concerning God written by a Jew, God will be spelled G underscore D. Leaves the O out, so you're not spelling the name. Now, by the way, nowhere... In the Holy Scriptures, is there a prohibition against saying God's name except when using it in vain? That said, 
Jewish tradition says that simply pronouncing God's name is using it in vain. Okay? Now, I don't want to get into some theological argument about this. Okay? But I cannot find that it is vanity to pronounce God's name. This is my position. I can also tell you that I have met several Jews who feel that it's not so much a matter of trespassing against God to use his holy name as it is a matter of showing respect to the holy creator of the universe by refraining from using it. Therefore, let me tell you that as Paul advised, I advised you, be sensitive to things that offend others even if you cannot fully understand why or you don't even agree with it. Okay. Therefore, as I full well know, all right, that all religious Jews and some simply traditional Jews find the use of the word God or Yahweh offensive to them, I do my best to say Hashem or Lord in their presence, something like that, out of respect to them. Okay. When I go to Israel, I'm particularly careful. I mean, let's face it. Okay. It's certainly not offensive to us who find no fault in using God's name to hear him called Hashem or the Lord. So it's not a very difficult trade-off our direction, is it? All right. But there's no use to offend somebody over this at all. Now, in this class, I'm going to use and have used many names for God. God, Jehovah, Adonai, Yahweh, and for Jesus. Christ, Jesus, Yeshua, Yeshua, Mahamashiach, Lord, Savior, a few more. Now, I ask you to try and understand that this is a classroom. Right? And I'm speaking to quite a varied audience. Okay? Further, most Bibles are going to use one of these names or another. So, if I do use code words for God and for Jesus that are totally unfamiliar to many in here or many that are listening on CDs and tapes that I'm not communicating or teaching I'm just talking okay so know that I respect your views and mean no offense to anyone by the words that I would use now we'll go a couple more minutes and call it a night let's go back to this strange scene that opens chapter 18 the thing is, one of the three so-called men who appears to Abraham seems like he must actually have been the father himself, Yahweh. I mean, we're, because the words used right there in the scriptures. Now we'll get to the other two men in a minute. The thing is. There is no doubt that this was some manifestation of God Almighty because the scripture directly says so. It says, yud hey vav hey, all right, appeared to Abraham. On the other hand, we're told insistently that no man can look upon God the Father and live. Not even Moses was permitted this honor, though he asked for it. Now, often we are told that what this really means is that this man called Yahweh was Jesus, right? We've heard this. It must have been Jesus. Because here was God in some visible form that appeared as a man. 
And the general rule in the evangelical church is if God has physical characteristics, it's Jesus. That's the deal. But wait. When have you ever heard Jesus referred to by the Father's personal name? Yahweh. Now, most certainly, we regularly call him the Lord, which translates from the word Adonai. But again, in the original Hebrew, the word used to open chapter 18 is yud heh vav not Adonai. Okay. In verse 3, however, after we're told that Abraham looked up and saw three men, we do encounter the word Adonai. Here's the thing. Adonai is plural. Adon is singular. Adonai, a plural, is sometimes used to refer to God. Okay. But then it's referred to in using a, a form called the plural of majesty. In other words, when Adonai is referring to God, it's not denoting more than one, it's simply denoting greatness. Just a way of speaking. Okay. Here, however, the context indicates that Abraham was addressing all three so-called men that appeared to him. And therefore, the verse 3 should likely read, He, Abraham, said, My lords, if you please, do not go on past your servant. Now, this whole thing is complicated by the fact that in verse 2, where it says... And he saw three men standing near him. The Hebrew word used here for men is enosh, right? which specifically means men, human men. Sometimes it's even used to indicate mankind in general. But never does the word enosh refer to spirit beings. The rabbis and sages are fairly evenly divided on this issue from everything I can find. Some think that one of the men is a manifestation of God and the other two are just humans. Others think that one is a manifestation of God and the other two are angels. Okay. Now, now let me throw another monkey wrench into the works. Okay. All this bowing and scraping we see Abraham doing, running around, everything's hurried, hurried, hurried. Okay, calling them lords, telling his wife to hurry and bring food. This foot bathing all right, is just typical and traditional Middle Eastern hospitality of that era, and to some degree it still exists today. Nothing Abraham is doing in here is out of the ordinary for greeting much welcomed guests. So his actions don't really help us in determining just who these three individuals are. Oh, and it gets worse. Sarah does as Abraham instructs her. She brings food and water, milk and curds, even some meat. And as it says in verse 8, now catch this, he, Abraham, took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set them before them, and he waited them under the tree as they did what? They ate. Now, not only is it hard to imagine Yahweh eating food, it's equally difficult for us to envision angels eating food. Okay. Josephus, the Targum Jonathan, and the Talmud simply cannot accept that here we have a scene of both God and angels dining. 
eating food. So they say that it was only that the three individuals gave the appearance of eating, but they really weren't. People have a hard time explaining all this. Okay. Now, in the end, it's very difficult to know what to make of all this. Yet it is undeniable that something supernatural is occurring here because we are told directly and undeniably that this was an appearance of yud of Yahweh. And that these three individuals had authority and man, they knew things. They knew things that should not have been, they should have not been able to know otherwise. Such as Sarah's name are the fact that she was barren and we'll return all to this and try to finish this up and answer some of the questions next week.